0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com.
1: I usually try to start when I uh, speak to start out with a little bit of humor. I think today we're going to need a little bit of humor. Sorry to tell you that. but um, uh, Police comments. These are police comments that actually were taken from Cam Video. Um... You know, the stoplight doesn't get any greener than the one you just went through. (laughs) Relax. The handcuffs are tight because they're new. They'll stretch when they get worn for a while. If you take your hands off the car, I'll make your birth certificate a worthless document. If you run, you only go to jail tired. Can you run faster than 1,200 feet per second? Because that's the speed of the bullet that will be chasing you. You don't know how fast you were going. Cool, I guess that means that I can write the ticket for anything I want to. Yes, sir, you can take, take your concerns to the shift supervisor, but I don't think that will help. Oh, did I mention I am the shift supervisor? Warning, you want a warning? Okay, I'm warning you to do this again. I'll give you another ticket. The answer to this last question will determine whether you are drunk or not. Was Mickey Mouse a dog or a cat? Yeah, we have a quota. Two more tickets, and my wife gets a toaster oven. <laughs> I'm glad to hear the chief is a personal friend of yours. You'll now know somebody to post your bail. And this is my favorite, and this is the last. You don't think we give pretty, tic- uh, pretty... you don't think we give pretty women tickets? You're right. We 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 don't. Sign here. I'll do that one better, second service. (laughs) i got a three-minute video to show. The only lead-in I will tell you is that this is concerning the 2007 shooting at Virginia Tech.
0: We heard the first shots at around 9.40 a.m. Uh, I was sitting on the wall of the classroom, so in the hallway, and I could hear the shots getting closer and closer very quickly. I mean, there was only a few seconds between the first time we heard them and when he actually walked in. To me, it sounded like um, an axe being taken to a piece of wood. And our teacher, she opened the door and she peered outside and she immediately shut the door and she said, call 911. And right then, he walked in just seconds after. Um, There's absolutely no time to to think, or to duck, or to take cover, and people just kind of fell to the floor. And he immediately walked in shooting, and he went to the other side of the classroom, and he started going down the rows. He went down each row very quickly, very purposefully. And I remember thinking, your your turn is coming. You're going to get shot. I mean, I didn't realize there was an active shooter, but I knew something bad was happening. He came back to our classroom three times, and on the third time, he killed himself in the front of the class. In between, each time he was there, you could just hear people crying and coughing and the cell phone started ringing. Um, When he was in our class, I remember trying not to breathe very much, so he couldn't tell I was alive. Because as my stomach was hitting the the chair, I was thinking, you know, he can see me breathing, he can see me alive, and, and that was very scary. I'll never forget when the SWAT team first broke in, um, at around 9.51, the officer in the front of the classroom said, we have a lot of blacks in here. And at the time, I couldn't comprehend what he was talking about, but he meant triage codes. And I remember looking into the girl to my right and realizing, you know, what black meant. He looked over me and he said, First he said yellow, and then he changed it immediately and he said red, and that's when I first started panicking. I still couldn't speak. I was shot three times, lying on my back, and I remember thinking, what do you see? Like, what can you see on me that I can't, that you would change me from yellow to red? He killed 12 people in my classroom, including our teacher. Your perspective on life and your attitude and your relationships um, definitely changes after you experience something like this. I noticed very quickly after the shooting um, just my my outlook on things, my, my behaviors, my attitudes, what I valued really shifted and has changed dramatically. Um, you're much more grateful for small things in life. You look at people differently. You appreciate traffic a little bit more um, because at the end of the day, you get to be there. You get to experience traffic. You get to feel... You know, the frustration of being alive, and that's something that we can never forget to not take for granted.
1: I will issue you two apologies. One, I apologize for starting on a very tough, heavy moment. I also apologize to you to say I'm not sure it's going to get a whole lot better for us today. See, we're going to talk about a 17-year-old that was sold into slavery, and we're going to talk about an 18-year-old who was killed by a drunk driver. So today's message may be a little tough, and we'll try to get through it together if we can. The thing about this video that sticks out to me is if you've ever been in an institutional situation, an institutional classroom, you can relate to what she said. And then if you can relate to that situation, the next question, at least for me, is what would I have done in that situation? How would I have responded? She obviously made it clear there was no time to think, no time to duck, no time to take cover, but how would we have responded? I think that's the question to ask today as we consider being put to the test. I'll try to define the context that we're speaking about today about being put into the test and I'll I'll do that by first saying what it's not. It's not a physical test. It's not the L.A. Lakers were really put to the test last night, that's not what we're talking about. Or the time you went hiking and just really pushed your limits. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about today is those things in life that inevitably happen that will test our character, that will grow us spiritually, that will test us spiritually. And in the end, hopefully be more Christ-like when it's over. Our journeys are at different stages at different times. All of us are at different places in in our spiritual journey, and we've had different experiences. But I find that each stage builds upon the next, those incremental steps that we go through, that God takes us through being in front of you today was a step for me. Matt asked me because I am a member of the Gideons International and I do go into churches and I do speak, but it's usually for 5, 10, 15 minutes and it's usually a rather tight outline that I follow. So being up here in front of you today is a test for me. It is an additional step for me. When Matt asked me, I immediately had two thoughts when he asked me to speak. One was of James Humphrey, drummer James Humphrey. When he he spoke several years ago. I remember sitting over here in this area as Jim, uh, James was speaking, and I had the thought, he's doing such a great job, I could never do that. And upon that thought, I kept thinking about all the excuses that I was gonna give Matt for not doing this today. And then instantaneously, I heard the voice of Dale Willis. Dale, who was chairman of our elders last year, a, a huge supporter of this church and passed away in December, but I heard his voice as he mentioned us elders several times. If you're an elder, you need to be willing, able, and ready to share the word of God whenever you're asked. Okay, Matt, I'll I'll be happy to do this for you today. Thanks for asking. What makes this message difficult is any test in life that I could think about. It's tough, it's unpleasant, it's not nice. And I can't, can't, maybe you can think of different situation, but I can't make it any prettier than that this morning. And if you take those tests of life, just think back over the last 15 months. We have been in a a pandemic, we're still in a pandemic, and that has caused many, many problems. Some of you have turned your homes into classrooms, into daycare. Some of you have worked from home. Some of you've lost your jobs and could not work, which has led to financial situations and, and, and stresses. Some of you may have been isolated and lonely. Some of you may have wished you were less lonely, that you were isolated with a handful of people. But if you add the climate in which we've operated in with racial injustices and and racial tensions and add a presidential election to that and all the political stuff that's happened around that, it's been a tough year. And then you add to that those real tests in life. The death of a friend, the death of a family member. Maybe an unfaithful spouse. Maybe a business deal that, that you weren't quite honest about. Or maybe a business deal that you did everything you could and it still fell through. Maybe those tests of life are sitting across from the doctor and getting that diagnosis of something that you never thought you would hear. Maybe it's being called to the mission field just like Gabrielle Davison did on this stage, just three weeks ago. Or maybe it's something that's simple that tests us, like asking for forgiveness or even granting forgiveness. The video that Christina shared with us this morning again, she said, There comes a time where there's no place, to, no time to think, no time to duck, no time to take cover. And see, that's when we find out what we're made of. How many of you have seen the object lesson before, and this obviously doesn't have anything in it, but you put something in this, and the youth pastor or pastor, whoever does the object lessons, they shake it up, and it overflows. And the object lesson is, when we get shaken up, what's on the inside comes out, what reveals itself. We're going to talk about that today in our two lessons. We're going to talk about Joseph I intentionally went retro on the graphic, okay? Just because this is my idea of Joseph when, when, when I was growing up. Joseph was the guy with the pretty coat, the coat of many colors, and, and unfortunately, his brothers did not like him. They hated him because he had a pretty coat, so they threw him in a pit, right? Again, retro graphic, they threw him in a pit. Shame on his hateful brothers. But when you read Genesis, it's a little bit more difficult than that. It's not quite that cut and dry. And we take a look at Joseph's family, how his family was made up. We're told 11 brothers threw him in the pit that day, which means there were 12 boys. Well, how did we arrive at 12 boys? And this wasn't obvious to me as a child growing up or reading this lesson. But Jacob, Joseph's father, had 12 boys with four different women, okay? And that will become significant in the verse I will share with you just in a minute. But suffice it to say that Jacob was not, or Joseph was not liked by his brothers. If we look at Genesis 37, three through five, it says, Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told this to his brothers, they hated him all the more. This is in Genesis 37, but if you back up four chapters, and this is when his family structure, to me at least is significant. When it says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau. Now let's remind us of Esau. Esau is Jacob's brother and Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright. So Esau's on his way and Jacob doesn't know exactly his intentions. So he assumes the worst that that Esau's there to kill him. So what does Jacob do? So he divided the children among Lee, Rachel, and two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Lee and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the, in the rear. He literally made a wall of defense with his family. And he had a pecking order. And he put those in front that would be sacrificed for, first, and he put Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Do you think you would have noticed I certainly would have noticed, and I'll be honest with you, I would have been one of the first to throw him in the pit or throw him in the the cistern. And we're going to go really fast here with the story of Joseph. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So he sold into slavery. They spared his life. They could have killed him, but they spared his life. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So he's been sold twice. He's now serving uh, a, a rather important man. And then we don't know exactly how long that, he, that this takes place, but one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak, she being Potiphar's wife. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, okay? She makes sexual advances toward him. She seduces him and he resists. But to the test, he passes the test. But then she turns the script around. She being Potiphar's wife, turns the script around. Look at Genesis 39, 19, and 20. When his master heard the story, his wife told him saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So now get the setting. Joseph's, and many of you have heard this story before, but Joseph's in prison now. But he's in prison with two special guests that used to be part of Pharaoh's uh, servant, Pharaoh's organization, if you will, the cupbearer and the baker. And if you remember, each of them had a dream and they're sitting around, "What, what, what does this dream mean? We just don't understand. Good thing Joseph was around. He interpreted the dream. And long story short is, he said, okay, Baker, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to die. It's over for you. Sorry, nothing I can do. Cupbearer, you're you're going to survive. You're going to be good to go. You're going to be restored back to your position with Pharaoh. And Joseph follows up and says, hey, when you do, remember me, get me out of this place. He's asking, he's pleading. And the verse that's on the screen says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph and he forgot him. But did Joseph try to take things into his own hands? No, he would simply waited the two years. And after two years, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh doesn't understand the dream. Pharaoh tries to understand the dream. Nobody can can answer his questions or interpret the dream for him. And the cupbearer hears this and the cupbearer says, oh yeah, that guy in prison, I remember him. He's good with dreams. He can interpret them. So Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. Joseph tells him that there's going to be years of famine. Sorry, years of plenty followed by years of famine. And they make plans. And when they make plans, in Genesis 41, verse on the screen says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in his chariot, a second in command. The people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. So they They survived the famine, but Joseph's family, Joseph's brother and Jacob and wives, they, 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 they were affected by the famine as well. So ultimately, they make their way to see Joseph. And I know I'm skimming over a lot of the story here. Fifteen chapters in the book of Genesis this takes up. But his brothers find themselves in front of Joseph. And they don't know it. Chapter 41 says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 50 goes on to say, and this is Joseph speaking, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what God did here is he took a 17-year-old boy that probably wasn't ready to save a nation, but over the next 20-plus years, put him in positions to test his character, putting him in positions to grow him to the point where he saved lives. In Psalms, it makes reference to this by simply saying this, Psalm 105, 19, until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. In James chapter one, it says, "Consider it poor jo- pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may mature and complete, not lacking anything." We all face tests. I'm sorry to tell you that, but they're not going to be pleasant. But they will happen, and I often put myself in, in, in positions in my mind thinking, how will I respond to this? How, how will I react to this? Because I don't know. I haven't been through those things. I think I know how to react in those situations, but I don't know how I will react in those situations. I want to share a story with you um, that I think hopefully will bring all these ideas together. It may, it may share a bit of Bristol history with you. Maybe you are familiar with this story, maybe you're not. Um, but anyway, I think this will speak volumes to where I'm, I'm wanting to go today. The story is about Marcelo Dinsmore. He was the 18-year-old soccer player, Tennessee High, who was tragically killed by a drunk driver. Um, and the drunk driver fled the scene. And, and if I can get the graphic up, Hopefully, the graphic's there. Yeah. Just about a mile and a half from here as the crow flies at the the, uh, White Top Sports Complex, there is a field there that commemorates Marcello, the Marcelo densmore Championship field. And then there is a plaque there that has a likeness of Marcello, and it may be a little small to read, but let me read it for you. Not only an incredible player, but an inspiring person. Surprisingly, his modesty and sportsmanship surpassed his athletic prowess. He lived and competed with grace and purpose. A man of faith, he loved others with kindness of Christ. He was a true friend to so many, the warmth of his smile and rippling impact of his life will be felt forever. Marcelo's life was tragically taken by a drunk driver two days after Tennessee high school graduation, a two-time soccer parade All-American, and a member of the U.S. National Team. Um, I had the opportunity to live beside the Densmore family at the end of a cul-de-sac uh, starting in 1992 up to 1998 where this happened. Um, three three Densmores, there was mom, Vera Dinsmore, and there was older brother, Rodrigo Densmore, uh, known as Roddy, and then there was Marcelo. I want to tell you that it's only by permission that I share this story with you today. I don't feel like it's my story to tell. I feel it's too personal to tell, but I received permission from the family to share this with you this morning. And this, as Paul Harvey would say, is the rest of the story. At 3 a.m. on that Sunday morning, I received a, a uh, doorbell ring. And I can tell you at 3 a.m. in the morning, there's not any scenario you can think of that's gonna be a good one. It's probably not Publishers Clearinghouse. They're not, probably not giving me money. Went downstairs, opened the door, and it was Roddy. And Roddy said, Mr. Fox, the police have just left. My brother's been killed in a car accident. I immediately hugged him, immediately told him I loved him. And then I immediately asked, where's your mother? And he made the comment, mom's not home yet. Yeah, it was 3 a.m., but understand that mom was visiting family. They had planned to go to Brazil later that day for several weeks in the summer. So she was just visiting family. Not really knowing what to do next, we walked into my kitchen. We picked up a phone, because cell phones were rare then. We picked up a phone. We called our youth pastor. Roddy had been in the youth group with our youth pastor, so our youth pastor knew him. We told him the situation. We walked back to my living room, and that's when you could see the glow of red lights in the garage. Mom was home. Roddy immediately ran over. I stood in my doorway, and that's when you could just hear the screams. You could hear the crying. I made my way over shortly to see if there was anything I could do, anything anything I could help with, and they were getting ready to make their way to the hospital. I managed to go take a shower, get some clothes on real quick. I made my way to the hospital as well. We got there at the same time, the family and I did, and we walked into the lobby of the hospital, and the first person we saw was that youth pastor. And Vera immediately went up to that youth pastor and just started beating him just pounding his chest. And she said, why has your God taken my boy? Why has your God taken my son? We were there about 45 minutes or so. I looked around, Roddy was nowhere to be found, so I actually went to try to find Roddy. I found him downstairs, I guess near the basement, maybe near the morgue. And I'll never forget the sight when I walked in. I opened that door, walked into this cold room, stainless steel table and Marcello's body was on that table and Roddy had his big thick black Bible laying open on Marcello's bare chest and he was reading scripture after scripture after scripture and I listened for a while as he read those scriptures and Roddy did not cry, his voice was not shaking, his voice was not breaking, he was just proclaiming the promises of the word of God in the midst of just losing his brother hours before. I'll be honest with you, it made me feel ashamed to see such assurance in a 20 year old young man. Over the next four or five days, there was a Bible service, uh, not Bible service, memorial service plan, funeral service plan. Viking Hall was open, thousands literally came to Viking Hall And then I heard that that youth pastor, sometime in those days, had spoken to that youth pastor. And Vera Vera had accepted Christ as her personal savior during that time. And I can tell you this, Vera was a good person and a good mom before then, but she was a good person and a good mom after that. But she was changed. She was not the same person. She was a very different person shortly after they sold their home and 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 we lost touch and it was my first visit to discovery church after church we're putting up chairs and vera made her way up to me and we got caught up this was 2011 this was this was a decade later and we got caught up i asked how roddy was doing how the grandchildren was doing and i said i saw on facebook vera where you went back and got your degree that's great and she said, Connie, I got to tell you, I got to tell you about that graduation service. She said, we were at rehearsal, we were at practice, and that's when I heard the name, his name, the drunk driver's name. He was graduating in her graduation class. She said she went home, she cried, she told Roddy she couldn't do it. Roddy talked her in to do it, and as, as fate would have it, after graduation, those two met. And that young man, I don't remember his name, he made his way up to Vera, and he said, Vera, I want you to know there's not a day goes by that I don't think about Marcella. I am so sorry. Can you forgive me? And I remember standing in that YMCA gym and Vera saying, I didn't want to, but then I thought about a God who has forgiven me and understanding fully what that forgiveness means I forgave him he asked and I forgave him and I gladly did it you know I thought in closing we will all come to one final test where we stand before God and he says depart from me or enter in good and faithful but that's wrong that's not the test that will be the final results that will be the final result of the final test but when does that test occur that test occurs at different times at different places in each of our lives. And that test being when that small, still voice whispers into us that says, hey, you're a sinner. You're lost and undone without me. I'd love to know you. I'd love to come to your life, know you personally. Allow me to do that. We either can accept or we can either reject that. That's the test. Some of us, it happens at a a, a very young age. Some of us, not so much. Some of us in church, some of us outside of church, but it will be a test. It will be something that we all face if you accept Jesus Christ you will be a changed person Vera in texting with me and I was asking permission permission from this here's what she said my most vivid memory is you coming to my house I was in the garage door I looked at you with all the anger I could bear and asked, is this the God you worship and talk about I want nothing to do with him do you remember that, she says. And the fact is, I did not remember that until she mentioned it. This was before Jesus was in her life. And like I said, she was changed afterwards. So when we are put to the test, first of all, I hope you have Jesus in your life. And then if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and you are put to the test, when you are shaken, I hope the assurance The peace of God overwhelms you. As Christina said, when there's no time to think, no time to duck, no time to take cover, how will you react? I hope we all react with that assurance first. And then second, whoever we're in that situation with, whatever the situation, I hope we respond with the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. I think that's exactly what Scripture tells us to do. I think that's what Joseph and the story of Marcelo Densmore tells us to do.